Uh, reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, but you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, uh, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Just to be clear, I like AJ a lot, but um, I meant the microphone was hot, not so much. We're, we're, we're friends. We're only friends, I promise. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Uh, Lord Jesus, how precious is the flow. Lord, your, your life, your death, you have made us clean. Um, you lived the perfect life. We don't. Your death paid the penalty that we were due. And Lord, by faith, you apply that to us and make us clean. So we're so grateful for that. What a, what a refreshing message to remember that we are pure in Christ, clean as the driven snow. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that gift. And Lord, I want to pray for uh, just a number of things going on in the world today, um, many struggles and strife. Lord Jesus, you told us to expect wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, um, all of these things, they're not the end. They are the beginning of the end. They are the, the birth pains, the, the beginning of the trouble. And so, Lord, as we look around the world today, we see wars and rumors of wars and um, 
all sorts of things happening. And, and Lord, we know that those things are totally within your control. They're under your hand and, and you can lead and, uh, and, and cause those things to work together in the way that you want them to. But Lord, we appeal to you um, on behalf of the people of Ukraine um, that you would help them to stand strong, to defend their homeland. Lord, that you would uh, turn the Russians away from the invasion, that they would retreat and, and uh, find a way to make peace with their neighbor. Uh, Lord, that you might bring hope and help in that difficult situation. Uh, Lord, I pray for the hostages from Israel who've been taken and captive into Gaza. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would, uh, through negotiation and, and, and the work of many intermediaries, bring them home safely. Um, Lord, I pray for the people of Gaza, the Palestinians who are being used as human shields by uh, Hamas. Uh, Father, I pray that you would find their, they would find a way to, um, to protect themselves, to uh, evacuate if necessary. And Lord, we just pray for you to break the, uh, the power of Hamas, the, the hold that they have, bring that to a conclusion and uh, free the, the, the Palestinians, but uh, also protect the Israelites have mercy in that situation. It's a, a troubling place. And then, Lord, a little closer to home, I want to pray for the Southern Baptist Convention uh, as they face some real challenges um, dealing with uh, a, uh, sexual abuse scandal and accusations and, and lawsuits and all of those things. Lord, that's, that's going to be very difficult waters to negotiate, and I pray that you'd give the leaders their wisdom um, that you would fill them with mercy for the victims, and uh, Lord, that they would be able to tell who is and who isn't. Um, so Lord, whatever they have to do, whatever they have to face, um, I just pray for that denomination, since it's the biggest Protestant denomination in America, that um, you would show your, your wisdom, your grace, um, your care for the marginalized in and through that, that giant organization. Have mercy on them. And Father, we pray for Daniel Holmquist, our, our previous pastor, as he's looking for uh, a new position. Lord, he's waiting for an interview with the church. And, and Lord, we pray that you would land Daniel where he needs to be. Lord, wherever you use him to, to help shepherd the, the, the church in a good and a positive way, uh, how can he use his gifts and his talents to help a church and what church needs him? Uh, Lord, would you bring that together? And we pray that it is the one that he's waiting for the interview for. Uh, thank you for his miraculous recovery from uh, the cancer, how, how fast that disappeared. And uh, we pray for continued medical insurance and medical care for him going through forward. Uh, thank you for the, the time he spent with us being our pastor and our brother in Christ here. Um, and uh, Lord, we just pray for, for guidance for him. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our hearts to what you have to say? This is your word. You wrote it. You inspired it. You led Paul to say these words the right way, and we want to hear them the right way. So be with us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. He's a Jamaican-Canadian author, and he's one of these guys that are just perpetually curious. If you look at all the books he's written, he writes about everything. Anything that comes up that he finds interesting, he's going to dig into and and he's a really gifted writer, and he's a good speaker and stuff. What got him kind of started, what made, brought him to national attention was uh, a book he wrote in 2008 called Outliers. And in Outliers, what he wanted to find out is how do people get to be great at what they're doing? So how does a chess player become a grandmaster? How does a basketball player become Michael Jordan or something like that? How do they do this? Where do they, how do they get this? And he found a study that was done in the 1970s that said, you get it by 10,000 hours of practice. 
whatever you're going to do, if you do 10,000 hours of practice, that's how you get to that level. Um, and that was kind of the, the thought behind the book. Well, since then, it's been questioned and, and prodded and pushed back on quite a bit, um, if that's really true. So in, in 2014, he did a Reddit Ask Me Anything. And in it, he said, there's a lot of confusion about the 10,000-hour rule that I talked about in Outliers. It doesn't apply to sports. And practice isn't a sufficient condition for success. I could play chess for 100 years and never be a grandmaster. The point is simply that natural ability requires a huge investment of time in order to make it manifest. Unfortunately, sometimes complex ideas get oversimplified in translation. So his point is, you have to put in the work. You got to do 10,000 hours worth of practice to get there. But simply doing 10,000 hours of practice is not enough to get you there. There's other things that, that kind of fold into that that have to do with that. Um, and so it's do the work, but there's something behind the work that's going to take you that far as well. So that was the thing. I, um, I listened to a podcast where they were talking about the 10,000-hour rule, and they were asking about elite runners, some of the fastest runners in human history. And what they found was they come from countries that group around the equator for some reason. So you got to do 10,000 hours worth of practice and running, but you get an advantage for some reason being close to the equator. And I don't know what that is. So I'm sorry. I know you guys were looking forward to, you know, ultramarathons and stuff. We don't live anywhere near the equator, not close enough anyway. So we're not going to make it. The point I bring, the reason I bring that up is because there is something to this. There is the work you have to put in, but then there's also something else involved, some other thing that, that's got to be there as well. Now, if these folks didn't have uh, the 10,000 hours but had the natural ability, they'd never see it. Or you could be like me, which is no natural ability, do 10,000 hours and still be mediocre. Um, so there's got to be these two things coming together. And what we're going to see this morning as we look to Chapter 3 is we're going to see Paul apply this in kind of a general way. He, he didn't know about the 10,000-hour rule and, you know, that kind of thing. But he's going to have that same idea is there's work to be done, and then there's something else that has to be added to that to get you to that place where you should be, where you're growing. Remember where we're at. This is kind of Paul bringing his original argument, his original statement to a conclusion almost, sort of. Um, it started with, he heard from Chloe's people that the Corinthians were divided. They were arguing back and forth and who was the, the, the one that they were going to follow and who was the big name and that kind of thing. And so that was where it started. And then he went in and he talked about the Holy Spirit is, is what we should be united around. The Holy Spirit brings us about. And now in chapter 3, he's going to kind of tie it all together. That's why he mentions Paul and Apollos again and Cephas. That goes back to that beginning. Um, chapter 4, he's going to apply it. And I'm going to cheat and apply some of it today. But then next week when we get to chapter 4, we'll apply it again. Um, so here's what's going on. He starts with this idea, you have to grow up. That's his, his rebuke at the beginning is, you guys are divided and you just need to grow up. Um, and so that's, that's verses 1 through 4 is kind of his rebuke. Just, just grow up, you guys. And then verses 5 through 15, he's going to talk about the proper use or the proper place for teachers and leaders how you shouldn't put them on a pedestal, but how to use them appropriately. And then at the end, 16 through 23, he'll tell us kind of what it looks like. What's it going to, what should it kind of look like in the end? So he starts off with, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. He doesn't start off by, saying, by alienating them. He calls them brothers. 
Now, just as a side, I'll bring this up every once in a while throughout my preaching career, and so if you've heard it before, forgive me. The word brothers is not male believers. The word brothers, the adolphi, is applied to believers in general. So it's a masculine term, but it's just the people in Christ. And there's a number of places in the Bible where you can see it's, it's women included. So he's not just talking to the guys. So sorry, ladies, don't tune out at this point. You've got to pay attention here. Um, it's, a, it's a way to say that we're all included. It's, it's a, a broad term. He calls them brothers, and it's important that he starts out with this because he's about to rebuke them. But he's not doing it as a foreigner. He's doing it as a friend, as someone who is close, as someone who loves them. In chapter 4, he's going to call himself, I was your father in Christ. So he's, he's not pushing them away. He's trying to draw them in. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, of, as infants in Christ. So what does he mean by spiritual people versus people of the flesh? Um, remember when we talked about the Holy Spirit, we said that when somebody is spiritual, that doesn't mean woo-woo, read tea leaves and stuff. It has to do, in a Christian sense, of being under the influence, under the leadership, under the control of the Spirit, yielding to the Holy Spirit, heeding what the Holy Spirit has to say. That's a spiritual person. So he says, I couldn't talk to you like that because you aren't acting like that. You're instead acting like people of the flesh. Uh, the King James says carnal people. Uh, the New International Version says worldly people. Those kind of things. So what's he mean? Well, now, we need to kind of do a little theology here for a minute. In the 1980s and 1990s, there was this big debate within evangelicalism about lordship salvation is what it was called. Um, easy believism. And the idea was it started in the 1970s, but it kind of grew into books and, and, and you know, big lecture series and stuff in the, in the 80s and 90s. There were a group of evangelicals who said, you could become a Christian by making Jesus your Savior, but you didn't necessarily have to make him your Lord. So what it was was you could put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved, be a Christian, and then you could continue to live according to the flesh and doing all the things you were doing before. That was the idea. And, and the reason they said that, it sounds kind of like, what? But the reason they were saying that is actually kind of a, a good intention behind it. Because they said, if you tell people that you're saved by faith alone, and then you say, you, and therefore you have to live like this and this and this, and you can't do this and you have to do that, that's adding law to the gospel. And it's not being saved by grace. Now you're, you're saying that you have these rules. And so you can't ever tell somebody that they have to behave like this or they're not Christians. So that was the, the, the um, easy believism, the, the salvation or the Savior but not Lord. The other half of that fight was you, those two things are not disconnected. You can't have Jesus as one or the other. He's both. If he's your Savior, he's your Lord. Now, they defended themselves saying, we're not adding works to salvation by saying, if you believe and if you've put your hope in Christ, then you will live a different life. We're saying that's the repercussions. That is the result of salvation. So the people who believed in the two different things, this Lordship and, and Savior thing, would look to 1 Corinthians 3.1. It talks right there. Why can't you understand this? It talks about spiritual Christians and it talks about carnal Christians. And so there could be a carnal Christian. Carnal Christianity is not ideal. It's not what we want, but it's reality. Is that what Paul's talking about here? I, I don't think that's what he's getting at. When he talks about people who are spiritual versus people who are carnal, what he's saying is not that there's two categories of Christians that live in different ways. 
what he's saying is, how are you thinking about life? Are you thinking about it under the influence of the Spirit, looking at how the Holy Spirit would have you live, or are you still thinking like you thought before you became a Christian? And, and the reason I say that is because where he goes with that is he's applying it to, you look at Paul and you say, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or that. The Greeks at that time, these philosophers would show up in their big robes and they would have these beautiful oratory skills and they would just say wonderful things and, oh, I like that guy because he speaks really well. That's what they were thinking like. I, Paul doesn't speak so great. His speech is not fantastic, but Apollos, man, he shines. I am of Apollos. Yeah, but Apollos is not as, as, as theologically rich as Paul, so I'm of Paul. Well, you guys, you know, they didn't know Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus for three years. I'm of Cephas. And so this is how they were thinking. They were looking in those kind of categories rather than looking at spiritual. And remember what we said last week. The spirit is what's going to unite us and draw us together. So that's what he's talking about when he says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as, as people of the flesh. I have to deal with where you're at right now, but I don't want you to stay there. Why? Because you are infants in Christ. You're babies. That's not a good place to be. How long had this church been around? Paul planted them. He started the church. He stayed there for a year and a half ministering to them. And it's probably another handful of years after that. And they're still acting like they just heard the gospel. They're still being babies about it. So grow up. Get over this stuff. Let's get grown. He says, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now, this is another one of these, got to dig into this a little bit, because what does he mean by, I fed you with milk, not solid food? Is he saying that the gospel is milk and you have to get past that? So I came and I told you about Jesus. Now we've covered Jesus. Now let's get onto the good stuff. Like we were joking in Sunday school. Let's talk about eschatology. Let's talk about end times. Those kind of, that, now we'll get onto the really serious stuff. Is that what he meant? Because he said earlier in chapter two, he said, I have determined to know nothing amongst you except for Christ crucified. So is that the milk? Is that the beginning? And then we move on to the big stuff? That, that can't be what he's saying. That can't be what that is. What he's, he's saying is that's the beginning, but that's not the fullness of it. But he's not saying then we can just press on from who Jesus is and we'll go someplace else. So here's what he says. He, he's, he's saying that you guys are babies. I fed you milk and now you need to grow up. I want to use an example. I really wish in my heart of hearts I could prove that Apollos wrote Hebrews. That's my inclination is to think that Apollos wrote Hebrews, and I have a handful of reasons, but I can't prove it. And the traditional approach is that Paul wrote Hebrews. And so more traditional folks will say Paul wrote it. So either way, if Apollos or Paul wrote it, we're in good form because that's who we're discussing, right? Paul and Apollos are two big actors here. The way that the book of Hebrews approaches this is, if you read the first couple of chapters, Jesus is better than everything. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's, all, he's better than all of these things. And then when we get to chapter 5, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers to, of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the, the author of Hebrews says the same thing. You guys need to grow up. But listen to where he goes with this. He says, therefore, 
let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. Oh, good, then we can forget about Jesus once we're saved, right? Nope. And go on to maturity. What are those elementary doctrines of Christ? He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from uh, dead works, of faith toward God, and instructions about washing, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are the foundational. Those are the, the basics. I, I wish I knew more about the laying on of hands and, and the last judgment. But he says, we're going to press on from that. We're getting into the important stuff now. Let's, let's grow. Let's get better at this. And where does he go? Well, where he goes is he continues to talk about Jesus. Chapter 7, he, he introduces Melchizedek. And he says, this Melchizedek was a type of Jesus. He was kind of a picture of Jesus. But Jesus is better than him. He's a, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And therefore, Jesus is better than the Levitical priest. And he's better mediator of a better covenant. And he goes on and on. And so when he says, let's leave the foundational things, he doesn't go, well, let's forget about Jesus now and get into the good stuff. He digs further and further into who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's what Paul means when here when he says that he, he fed them milk. He got them the beginning. I told you how you get to be saved. You trust in Jesus Christ and, and who Jesus is. And now let's build on that. Let's, but it's not not Jesus anymore. It's, we're going to dig further and further into that. That's what, what he's, uh, he's doing there. So he says, um, I couldn't do that because you're stuck in this earthly mindset. I need to get you to, to a deeper place. And so let's, let's dig in. Let's go farther. Let's go on. And he goes, this is why you guys are arguing. This is why you're saying, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Paul, or I'm of Cephas. It's because you're babies. So grow up. There's your rebuke. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> now, how do we do that? How am I supposed to grow up? Explain that to me. And that's where he goes in this next section, is he's going to talk about where do you, your teachers, your leaders, your spiritual guides, where do they fit into this? How does this work? If I'm supposed to grow up, how am I going to grow up? What am, what am I going to do with that? And so in verse 5, he, he starts, he says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So he says, okay, so you're, you're immature and we want to build you up. How are we going to do that? Well, understand that you shouldn't be aligning under, I'm under Paul or I'm under Apollos, because we're just servants. We're, we're only pointing you to where you should be. We're serving God by telling you about him. So don't attach to us, but look at where we're going. Listen to whom you're, you're or listen to whom we're pointing you to. Follow our theology to its end. We're servants who, who you believe. So you've got to view these teachers, these leaders, these spiritual leaders, uh, um, those kind of folks better. They're serving Christ. They're not like the Greek philosophers or the Pharisees. Right? The Greek philosophers would come in and they would just or, you know, have this wonderful flowery oration so that people would come to them and give them money and pay me to come and speak and that kind of stuff. What about the Pharisees? The Pharisees, oh man, Jesus had some really strong words for them. They, they enlarged their phylacteries. Anybody guilty of that? What the phylactery was is that they would put scriptures in little boxes and tie it on their head and on their hands. And so they enlarged theirs. They made it nice and big so everybody could see, I have a phylactery. 
and, and they wore these big robes and they had their tassels and, and they would stand on street corners and pray and expect positions of authority and power. They were drawing people to themselves. What Paul says is, who's Paul and who's Apollos? We're just pointing you to Jesus. We're not drawing you to ourselves. Please don't attach to me. Go to Jesus. Look at who, who he is. The next thing he says is, I planted Apollos water and God gave the growth. Now, I have heard this in the, contents of, in the context of church planting. And I think it's fair, but I don't think it's what it means here. So, for example, when I was in seminary, I got evaluated to be a church planter. That was, that was what I thought I was supposed to do. The, the panel that interviewed me said, really nice guy, great Christian. You're going to be a great pastor someday. You are not a church planter. And the way they explained it to me is they said, there are people who are planters. There are people who plant churches. And then there are people who water. So there's Paul who planted and Paulus who watered. So you won't start a church, but you may come to a church and help it grow, maybe not numerically, but spiritually or something like that. And so that's, that's, where, you're, that's where we see you at. And they were like, are you okay with that? And I'm like, are you kidding? This is great. <laughs> I'm not one of you. <laughs> I, that's, I just didn't feel like that was really going to be where I was at. But that's how they use this verse. That's not what it's talking about. When he says, I planted, he's not talking about his, his serial church planting career, though he did that. What he's talking about in context is, I laid a foundation for you. I came in and I, I gave the basic doctrine to you. I, I put this information before you. I planted this. Then Apollos came in, and Apollos filled it out. He told you more and more. He gave you more information about that. He, I did my part. Apollos did his part. But the only reason that you grow is because of God. It is God who gives the growth. So don't look to the teacher and go, oh, that teacher is just so wonderful. That must be why I'm, I'm such a mature Christian now. That's the wrong attitude. What you have to do is see that the teacher comes and he does his part but it's ultimately God who's gonna cause you to grow. It's ultimately God who's gonna lead you to be that way. So it's not wrong to talk in, about it in the context of church planting, but I don't think that's what it means in this immediate context. I think there's a, another way to do it. Here's the thing, only God gives the growth. He says it twice in just a few verses. So how do you grow? Well, first of all, you have to recognize you, only God gives the growth. The only way you're gonna grow spiritually is because God gives the growth. We are fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. They're doing what God assigned them to do. They're building the way he had asked them to build, but they're not willing to take the credit for it. It's, it's all about God. Now, I don't know if this raises this question with you, but it did with me, so I'm going to answer it for you in case it does. Here's the, here's the structure of the layout of this so far. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for not growing. Grow up. Paul then says, who is Apollos and who am I? We're just ultimately nothing. We're servants of God. That's it. Then he says, God alone causes the growth. So here's the question. If God alone causes the growth, why is he mad at the Corinthians for not growing? Shouldn't he be appealing to God? God, would you make these people grow? And that's, I think, a tricky question because it's, it's really our experience too, right? I, I have great times of Bible study. I have dry spells. I have times when prayer feels like Jesus is sitting right next to me. I feel like I'm alone talking to myself. How do I grow? Well, the good news is God is in charge of your growth. But then what about all this other stuff? Do I not do that? And so that's, that's the, the struggle that I think Paul kind of senses is coming up. And so he answers that very question. How can we be told to grow 
and acknowledge that God does the growing. How can we do that? And so this is where he goes with it next. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else built upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that everyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as only through fire. He changed the metaphor on us. He originally was talking about planting, now he's talking about building a building. And so the, the, we have to pay attention here because things shifted a little bit on us. What he says is, I came in and I laid a cornerstone. I laid a foundation. I brought to you the, the chief cornerstone, the one that is so plumb and so square, it is perfect. I laid this foundation. I sunk it into the ground. It's not on sand. It is on rock solid ground. This is the firm and steady and sure foundation. This is what I've laid. This is what you've heard. Now, anyone who builds on that, is going to try to build correctly on that. If you deviate from that, that chief cornerstone, your building is going to fall over. If you decide that you don't want it on that foundation, you want it on something else, it's going to fall over. So the, it sounds like what he's saying is other teachers come after me and do these things. They're building on that foundation. I, th that I think is what's going on, but I don't think it fits in this context because he's not rebuking the teachers, is he? He's rebuking the Corinthians. So I think what he's saying to them is, this has been laid, this cornerstone has been laid in your life. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the sure cornerstone. And now as you build on that, as you bring other things in, as you listen to other teachers, as you gain more understanding, as you build things up, do they align, do they fit with this cornerstone, this Jesus Christ who started? Or do they lead you in other directions? Are they... Um, um, Precious stones, gold, silver, are they the, the, the foundational things that are good or are they wood, hay, and straw? And so what is he talking about that? What, is that, what would that look like? What would it seem to be like if somebody comes along and, and lays down wood, hay, or straw? Well, I think in the context, what they would do is they would not be saying, here's who Jesus Christ is. Let me tell you more about Jesus. What they would say is, you got to come to me. I'm the one who will help you. I'm the only one who can interpret this for you. And, and so they're going to draw you to themselves. Or they will say, hey, you know what? Here's, don't worry about Jesus. That's the foundation. That's cool. Here's eight things that you have to do to be a good person. Here's four principles for you to be a successful businessman. Here's 18 things that you must do in order to be a, a good father. And Jesus is nowhere in there. That's, that's the, 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 the wood, hay, and straw. Because it's not rooted in that foundation, in that cornerstone. It's now pointing you to something else. Or if they just say, well, don't worry about that. Here's what the world is up to these days. If they're pointing you in any other direction toward themselves, toward yourself, or toward the world, that's the wood, hay, and straw. What are you going to build on your foundation? Which people are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the people who are talking about themselves? I am the hero of every story that I use in every sermon illustration because I'm just that wonderful and you wish you were me. That's a bad sign. You see that? Go running, screaming. Scream and then run, I think, maybe. It might be better. Anybody who's pointing you to themselves, anybody who's pointing you to your, yourself, you have the power. You are worth it. You can do it. It's all up to you. 
run screaming. That's wood, hay, and straw. So you have to build that, how, that uh, wall up. You have to build that. Don't forget the foundation, the bedrock, that, that cornerstone. That thing that we're building on is true and accurate. So if it leads you to Christ, that's a good thing. If it leads you away from Christ or makes you forget about Christ, that's a bad thing. And so where he goes with that, he says, in the end, those things, all those things are going to be tested. And fire is going to come. And it's going to consume the wood, hay, and straw. That stuff is just going to gone. But the good things, the solid things, those things that are aligned with that, that rock, that foundation, they're going to abide. And so, folks, you need to be building the right way, with the right materials, listening to the right uh, teachers. Jude has something to say about this, and it fits right in with this, too. Jude, uh, starting in verse 19, it is those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the exact same message. Divisions, don't trust them. If people are saying you, you can't be with that group of Christians because they're inferior, you got to be with this group of Christians, that's that division. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. That's where he's been going with this. And so what Paul says instead, he offers an alternative and he says, and we're going to get to this in chapter 11, be imitators of me because I'm great. That's No, be imitators of me as I imitate of Christ. As I follow me as I follow Jesus. So this is how you use those, those leaders correctly. When you look at them, are they leading you to Jesus, even in their life and example? So not only is it their doctrine good, they can have good, solid doctrine, that can really get you in trouble. You got to look at more of this person. You look to a broader picture of their life. Is their doctrine good is question number one. What's their life like? Does their life match their doctrine? If it doesn't, that's a, that's a red flag. And then finally, what's their attitude like? If they're snotty and, and rude to people, then their life isn't lining up with that. And so don't do that. So I, I do have teachers in my life that have had profound impacts on me, but I don't think they're perfect. John Piper, Lisa and I used to go to the Desiring God conference every year, just about every year when we were in Illinois uh, to hear these great speakers and these great teachers. And John Piper, since it was his ministry, he was the kind of the big guy. On the breaks, he didn't disappear. It wasn't like, you know, somebody's talking and then the break happens and then poof, all the big names are gone. John walked right down front and he stood there and you'd see a line of people and he's standing there, shut out everybody else. He's talking to the person in front of him. He's dealing with this person and it might be somebody who's criticizing him or somebody who's struggling or somebody who just wants some time with him. And he would just blank everything out and focus on that person until that person was done and then he talked to the next person. He could have just disappeared and hidden, but that wasn't what he was there for. So John Piper's theology was good, and I saw his life reflect that. Another one of my big heroes you'll know is Tim Keller. I, I thought Tim Keller was wonderful. His, his doctrine, every single time, he's going to lead you to Christ. Every sermon is going to take you back to Jesus. Every single time. So what was his life like? Well, Tim was known on Twitter. You could see him. He would post something on Twitter, and somebody would come in and criticize him. And uh, not every single person, but occasionally he'd, he'd engage somebody who had 12 Twitter followers, but he would engage them and, and go back and forth and try to help them understand, this is the context that I'm talking about. In 2002, he did that to me. 
I was on a blog. I was, I was on this blog, and, and we were talking about church planting, and I got really critical of Redeemer because I didn't understand what was going on. I got an email from Tim Keller out of blue, out of nowhere. He said, I was reading this on this blog. Somebody pointed me to it. Your, your arguments seem to be the most substantial, so I wanted to clear some stuff up for you. And he wrote probably about a page and a half worth of email to a stranger on the Internet. That was how Tim was, as he would engage with people on a one personal basis. His doctrine and his life agreed. And you could go on and list person after person after person. So you kind of look at the teacher and don't be just enamored of, wow, are they great. Listen to that doctrine. Isn't that wonderful? Look deeper at the person. Because what you're doing is you're taking not only their doctrine, but their life and their example. And follow me as I follow Christ. And you're building that into your life. Is that wood? Is it hay? Or is it gold? So be careful with that. Now, you might be saying at this point, how am I supposed to assess these guys? I hear these people talk and they quote a bunch of the old dead guys that I've never heard of and I don't know what they are. And then they tell me what the Greek and the Hebrew actually means, like I did this morning. How am I supposed to question that? I can't question that. I don't know these things. Well, here's the good news, friends. You have resources. Remember, remember, um, uh, Gladwell said that, you know, the 10,000-hour rule, that works, but you don't get Michael Jordan just by doing 10,000. Like, I couldn't be Michael Jordan after 10,000, after 100,000 hours of practicing basketball. His physicality was what was different. His wingspan, fingertip to fingertip reach, was freakish. It was huge. It was not a normal, his, his shape of his body is not a normal shape. That's how he could beat people in basketball. But he could have that body form and not be great because he didn't practice. So it was the two coming together. So in this case, you have a natural, an, a supernatural resource available to you that will help you assess these folks. You have been given the foundation of who Jesus Christ is, step one. Step two, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God resting in you. Step three, you have a completed canon of Scripture. You've got all of the Bible. You've got all of the Scripture laid out before you, and the Holy Spirit in you helping you interpret and understand that. And you have a community of faithful and loving people who are walk with you, people you know you can trust. So how do you evaluate these other teachers beyond just looking at what they're teaching? Is, you say, is this leading me to Jesus Christ? The, the presentation may have been stellar. It may have been the most spectacular speech I have ever heard in my life. But it wasn't about Jesus. That's it. That's not worth necessarily following. Take it with a, with a grain of salt. So that, that 100,000 or 10,000 hour rule can apply. You do have to practice. You have to tune yourself in to be aware of these things. So for example, um, there's a book by a man named James K.A. Smith. You know he's important because he's got two middle initials. I only have one. He's got two. But it was called You Are What You Love. And what he says, he says, simply stated, virtues are good moral habits. So he's building this idea of habits, things that you just routinely do over and over again. And he says, learning virtue, becoming virtuous, is more like practicing scales on a piano than learning music theory. The goal is a sense for your fingers to learn the scales so they can play naturally, as it were. Learning here isn't just information acquisition. It's more like inscribing something into the very fiber of your being. So how do you grow in these things? How do you, how do you become more mature in these things so that you can discern these 
questionable teachers are the better teachers. God has given us, and this is where I'm tying this back to God causes the growth. This is how God causes the growth. He's given us things that we do over and over again. He's given us those things that we have to repeat. Sabbath is, is a thing that he's given us that comes up once a week. We do it all the time. Now, within Christianity, there's arguments over the abiding nature of the Sabbath. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Here's the point. We have a Lord's Day. We have a time that we set aside on a Sunday. We say, this is important. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. Why am I going to go to church? Because I'm going on this regular pattern, repeated over and over again. And sometimes church is stellar. And then there's sometimes where it just falls flat, and I don't like it. And, you know, the sermon was okay, and I don't know. But the pattern, going through it again and again and again. Bible study. Just sitting down 20 minutes in the morning or in the evening or during lunch or something, just sitting down with your scripture and reading it. And sometimes it just sings. You, you read that, like we read that psalm today, and it was just really just punching me in the gut. Just this is so good. And, and I agree with Kyle. It's like David is so real. He's so us. He could walk in here and just sit down and fit right in. He's not some fl saint floating on, on midair. There's times when you're reading the scripture, and oh, my gosh, thank you, Lord. That's like that. A couple weeks ago, I was reading Mark, and I got to about the middle of it, and it just fell flat. Uh, my eyes passed over the page, didn't really grip me. When I got to the end of it, suddenly it just came back to life. But I'm going to continue to do that daily, go back to it over and over and over again, because the dry times don't dispel it. They heighten your expectation. And when it comes back, then it's great. Prayer, this one you can do anytime, anyplace, anywhere. You don't have to go to a special place, set a time aside, just pray. And there are times when you're going to pray and it feels like I said earlier, like Jesus is sitting next to you with his arm around you going, man, I hear you. I, I, I was in that boat. I know what that was like. And then there are times when it's going to feel like my voice is bouncing off the ceiling and I'm, nobody's hearing this. Keep praying. Keep that pattern going again and again. God has given you the right to pray. And if you repeat that pattern, it trains your heart. That's how you can begin to grow, through the good times and through the dry times. I could keep going on and on, Bible study, uh, fellowship, get together with other saints. If you sit by yourself, you miss the gifts that God's given to other people. You miss the, the fellowship and the community of watching what God's doing in other people, too. So he's given us all of these things, and he expects us to make use of them. That's how God causes growth. That's the pattern of learning virtue as if you're playing scales. Not so that you can think where every finger goes, but so it just happens. So when you, when you see the, the G-sharp scale, your fingers just know which ones to hit. When the t difficult times come, when the bad teachers come, you go, I do not hear my master's voice. I don't hear the voice of the good shepherd in there. I don't hear my father speaking to me through that. How do you get there? You get there by being coming familiar with it, by going over it and over it and over it. And here we go. I'm going to Leviticus again. Oh, my gosh. I, the boil thing is driving me nuts. But you're listening for what God is saying through those things. And there'll be times when all of a sudden you go, oh, my gosh, this is, this is incredible, and times when it just sails past. And it's okay. So that's how God can cause the growth, and Paul can rebuke those guys for not growing. is because God doesn't say, now sit still, do nothing, and I'm going to beam into your brain all the things that you need. Just don't do anything, but I'm going to zap your heart with enough faith to make it all work. What he says is, I've set all of these things up for you. I've called you. I've given you my spirit. I've given you my word. And now here, put these into practice. Do this. And so it's that, that, that 
Two things have to happen at once. He's given us what we need. So grow up. That's what Paul's saying. You got what you need, now grow up. Don't attach to me, don't attach to Paulus, grow. God causes the growth. That's the benefit of going. Prayer time this morning was really dry, and if I have to read the genealogies in um, numbers one more time, I'm going to pull my eyeballs out. But what the promise there that leads you through that is God causes the growth. This is God's word to God's people. His Holy Spirit has given it to you. He's given you teachers. He's given you leaders. He's given you spiritual guides to help you grow in those things. And so not everything in the Bible is going to be the best ever experience when you read it. But these are the things that God has given us. So this is why Paul can say, you guys grow up and don't look at me. Look past me. Follow where my theology is leading. Follow me to Christ. So what does it look like, the last part of the chapter? He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Good news. You are the temple of God. Not this building, not some building in Jerusalem. You are the temple of God. That's why I said when he was talking about building these things up and who builds on it, that's you. You are that. And God loves you so much. He is so jealous for you that if anybody tries to destroy your faith, he will destroy them. If anybody tries to draw you away from Jesus Christ, he will destroy them. That was that part about the, the day, the day when the Lord returns and everything gets judged by fire. If it doesn't draw you closer to Christ, it's going to burn. That's the hope. And so in verse 18, he goes on, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool lest he become wise. Uh, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Sorry about that. I said the exact opposite. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, they're all yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ said, God, that's the, that's the link. This is what it looks like then. Don't appeal to earthly mental games on this stuff and, and try to figure out how this works in a, in a strictly earthly, fleshy, not spirity kind of way. That's not wisdom. It feels like wisdom. It feels like it's really super smart way of talking about things. And we can talk about uh, quarks at the atomic level and, and uncertainty principles and all these, that's, that's earthly wisdom. It has its place. It does its thing. That's not what it's all about. So don't think you're wise just because you know big fancy words. Instead, recognize that God is going to give us wisdom. He, he's going to give it to us. He's going to apply it to us. The, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. He understands how this works. And so we can only take us so far that way. We've got to listen to Paul, or we've got to listen to God. Therefore, all things are yours. What do I need? Uh, Lord, I don't have something that I need. There's something missing in my life, and that's why I'm not growing. All things are yours. Whether it's Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, any teacher that's teaching Jesus Christ, that's yours. The world, the whole world is yours. We're going to inherit it one day. It'll be cleaned up. Jesus promised he'd clean it up. It'll be better. Life or death, they're not foreign. They're not alien invaders for us. Life is to live as Christ and to die as gain. So life and death are ours. 
Whatever comes in those things, that is going to draw us closer to God. It's going to make us closer to his. The present or the future today is ours. The future, when we look forward, we don't go, well, we're going to lose. We're not. I read the end of the book. I know who wins. Jesus did. It's good news. We're with him. Be with him. So all of this, that's ours. And that's ours because we're Christ's. And all of that is Jesus because he's God's. So that's the linkage. So now, grow up right? No more divisions. No more, I'm arguing, I'm, I'm with this person or I'm with that person. Those persons are inconsequential. Look where they're pointing. Are they pointing me to Jesus Christ? Then I'll listen to them. If they're pointing me away from Jesus Christ, if they're pointing me to something else, then I don't want it. Because all of this is for me. Jesus is working all of these things together. That's the end of his argument on why they shouldn't be divided, why there shouldn't be divisions in their church. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff. Where he goes in chapter 4, though, is he's going he's to then pick this up and apply it to himself. He's going to talk about the role of the apostles and, and that kind of thing. But he's going to do it in much bigger scope than I did. So also, even if I repeat myself, good news. I just said repeating is okay. <laughs> That's how God gives us stuff to grow is we're going to repeat it over and over again. So if you get sick of hearing some of this, good. <laughs> that means it's sinking in. If you go, I never heard Tim say that before, then I missed my mark. And so... It's a good thing we're repeating. So grow up, everybody. Um, the good news is Paul had to grow up too, right? Paul had growth before he got to this point. So when you look at those people who are leading us, don't go, they've arrived, they're perfect, they've made it, they've nailed everything down, therefore, I'm never going to be like them. Instead, recognize they're progressing as well, they're growing in grace as well, and we can follow them as they're following Christ. So grow up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you that uh, you have given us everything. And by everything, it's everything we need, everything that, that will cause us to grow into you, to be more like you, to be like our big brother in God. Um, and so thank you that you have given us everything. There's nothing that doesn't have a way of leading us to you if we'll pay attention. And Lord Holy Spirit, would you make us to be not carnal, but spiritual people, that we would be thinking not how the world functions on these things, but Lord, how you would function, how you would have us behave. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply ourselves to the difficult things that you've given us and the easy things, the pleasant things and the difficult ones, that we might grow up and be mature Christians off of the milk onto the solid food. And the solid food is Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen.